Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the Riptide. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com. for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy. Hey, my brewing brothers and sisters. Greetings, greetings. <laughs> it's uh, good to be here. Yes. Uh, you floating over Michigan, me floating over Heretic Brewing Company. That's right. Where we each are. Where we're most appreciated, right? <laughs> oh, well. Uh, you might be. Uh, me, <laughs> who knows? Uh, I, I appreciate uh, having beer readily accessible. That is a nice perk, yes. I saw somebody post on uh, Facebook. There's like a pro brewers Facebook group. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, and uh, I think you remember. Yeah, I just recently joined. Yeah, right. And um, somebody posted. It's like, what is the thing you know you like most about your brewery? It's like <laughs> there's beer there. I mean, is that, is that the answer you can get from all yes. three thousand people? It's like, well, yeah. I've, Ready access to beer. And Number the beer one. I like, yes. Yes, beer yeah. I think is good. Ah, there we are. Uh, it's as simple as that. Uh, what's the second thing? I have no idea. I'm still just <laughs> pleased with the first. <laughs> uh, speaking of people I'm pleased with, uh, our good friend John Blickman. Oh, you know why? John, Yes. Because he has been uh, paying for the show, so our uh, listeners don't have to, for getting close to two decades now. Yeah. I don't know how many decades we've been doing this, but my understanding of a decade is, you know, An eternity. Around, yeah. around 10 years. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And we appreciate, John, making it possible for us to continually talk beer with you guys. You know, it's a, it's a couple hours a week that we get to step away from the family life and say, you know, I really need to talk about beer. And uh, John makes that possible. There you go. No, uh, he's a great, great friend and a great uh, uh, asset to the brewing community and and, uh, you know, just everybody around him. And he's his uh, superior intelligence to uh, design and uh, produce and uh, uh, make accessible to uh, the brewing community across the world uh, some great brewing equipment. So check it out. Uh, BlickmanEngineering.com. Check out the website. Lots of great stuff there. And uh, you can actually uh, send uh, a kind thanks to uh, Mr. John Blickman. Feedback at BlickmanEngineering.com. Tell him uh, how much you appreciate that uh, he's paid for the show so you don't have to. And uh, uh, trust me, he gets every one of those emails. And he he enjoys seeing that people, uh, that the show actually reaches people and that uh, – and that you enjoy what, what we're doing. So uh, that's why he's paying for this show uh, for no other reason than that. So uh, make sure to send him a good email. Uh, I'd appreciate it. I know John would appreciate it and John would appreciate it. My, that's right. My, my two closest Johns. Uh, there you go. Uh, today uh, we're going to be doing a uh, Q&A show. We have uh, been lax. We've been talking about some great subjects, but we have not uh, kept up with our Q&A pool. If you have questions uh, to ask us here on uh, Bruce Strong, you can send them to BruceStrong uh, uh, at thebrewingnetwork.com and uh, just preface it with uh, you know, a question for the show. And you won't get uh, our immediate response, but eventually we'll get to it. I mean, it may be two decades later, but we 
we'll get to every <laughs> single one of those questions, I promise you. That's right. And uh, one of the first questions that came up is, uh, let's see here, uh, Rich, he was asking, uh, I hope you guys are still producing the podcast, that everything is going well for Jamel. Uh, Indeed. Yes. What I love about this is, yes, we're still producing the podcast. We, we missed a few months there because of the pandemic and the fires and everything else that's going on. Right. Kind of, uh, messed us up. and we, Family stuff. John has lost a dear family member. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, it's just been, it's been a, a rough ass last two years. I'll tell you that. It really has. Yeah. Did you have to evacuate from Vacaville with, with the fires? Uh, we came within like one block of being evacuated. Yeah. So I thought looking at the news. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, uh, one of my daughters lives up in, um, uh, Rockland and the other was uh, living at the house with us and she evacuated. She's like, I'm not waiting around. She does a 911 dispatch. And so uh, she's like, right. look, dad, time to leave. <laughs> I'm like, one, I'm not leaving without Liz. I said, you know, I said, I'm not leaving without mom. I said, you go. I said, I'm waiting for mom. You know, I'm not going anywhere without her. And she was here at the brewery. Uh, right. I'm like, either I'll go to the brewery and wait with her there or she'll come back to the house. Our house, it's a, a newer house and we moved in, uh, you know, trying to get closer to the brewery and, you know, it's all stucco, tile roof, not a lot of plantings around it. There's a giant cul-de-sac. I'm like, and it's, it's actually got fire sprinklers on the inside, all these new, new uh, construction homes in California. Wow. And I'm like, there's no way I'm going to burn. <laughs> I think I'm safe. And, you know, at worst, I go out and sit in the car in the cul-de-sac, you know, far enough from everything that I wouldn't burn there either. Mm-hmm. So I felt very safe. And the brewery is safe. It's all, this this damn place will never burn down, unfortunately. You know, it's going to take an, <laughs> it's going to take an errant missile strike from the, uh, an accidental missile strike from the air base to, uh, to take this place out. It's all concrete. Right. And it's not going to burn, so. We, we're we're safe. We it gets close. This two years in a row where uh, it got really close, but uh, yeah, we're we're surviving. So everything going well for John. Well, what cracked me up about this was he didn't ask about you, John. He just said, uh, wants to make sure everything's going well for me. And, yeah. you know, which yeah. is I, I understand. You know, it's because more people are interested in you. Well, That's, everybody loves me. You, yeah. no, not so much. But me, yeah. I kind of fly into the radar. Yeah. I am I am beloved, I think. I am I am uh <laughs> I am just important. I think maybe they realize that without me, they'd have to listen to like you and Justin. And you know There you go. Yeah. Oh my God. yeah. There's there's the problem, right? Listenership would fall off by two or three people. I would I, 50, you know, seventy percent there. That'd be seventy, eighty percent, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the five people that count on this, they, they'd be pretty disappointed, or two or three of them would. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so thank you, Rich, for, for thinking of us and, and, uh, <laughs> and asking. It just cracked me up that uh, <laughs> he was hoping it went well for me. Not you so much, but for me. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> uh that's great. I'm sure he didn't intend it that way. I, maybe he was asking because I've had recent medical problems. Yes. Yes. Or perhaps that's what he meant. And he cares about you greatly, John, just, just like I do. Uh, <laughs> uh, one of the cool things about doing these shows uh, live on Facebook is that it makes it so much easier for us to get listener feedback. And for, oh, true. for listeners to ask, ask questions, the, uh, absolutely, uh, gorgeous, uh, Bevo is, uh, kindly, uh, monitoring the Facebook, uh, comments. So don't say anything weird or pornographic, you guys, but if the, the point is, if, if you want to ask a question live, she's there to get your questions, filter them. So we don't have to look at your inane chatter. 
and uh, asked them of us. And Dolph has asked, I'm not sure what the topic is yet today uh, because, because we're rambling. It is Q&A. Uh, but my problem recently has been getting malt aroma. I make beers out of brewing classic styles and a lot, uh, brewing classic styles a lot. And the malt balance uh, ones uh, always seem to be lacking in malt aroma. Could it be how finely I mill my grain? All other vital statistics seem to be in order and the beer tastes very good. And I don't seem to be infected at all. I even buy great malt like Vireman from Northern Brewer. But when I compare mine to commercial examples, malty aroma and flavor are much more mild with mine. German beers are a very notable example. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Because uh, I, I always consider your recipes pretty be pretty malty. Um, right. So. My first thought would be a couple of things. One is three things. One is, you know, you're buying great malt, like environment, but sometimes people will buy just like certain specialty malts, which are very important, but they'll ignore the base malt. You know, they'll, they'll do like, yeah. you know, the cheapest base two row they can get and then hope to dress it up with specialty malts. But some, you know, one of the things about um, – Malt aromatics is, I think, a lot of it's carried by the quality of the base malt, you know, and and that the malt is fresh. So if you, yeah. you get your malt from a uh, uh, you know a homebrew shop and it's nice and fresh, you know, don't store it in the garage at you know 110 degrees Fahrenheit for six months and then expect it to taste as good. You know, it will deteriorate over time. Or you know, conversely, storing it cold and wet and damp. It'll deteriorate over time. So be right. careful about that. Make sure you're using a very high quality uh, base malt. I know, um, you know, even between certain, you know, uh, American two-row base malts, there's a huge aromatic difference uh, between, between them uh, and extract efficiency as well. Uh, so that was one. The second thing was, uh, as always, fermentation. If you are uh, not uh, getting a, a really uh, great fermentation that fully attenuates the beer to the to the maximum potential it should be, and this is you know I'm not talking about adding simple sugar and trying to drive the number lower. What I'm talking about is your yeast fully fermenting as normal, the uh, maltose and everything else that is present, leaving behind, you know, the, the great aromatics that'll come out. If you have too much residual sugar in the form of unfermented wort, it will be wordy and it will be, it's suppressive just like, you know, a lot of times adding crystal malt will suppress hops and other characteristics. Uh, you know, leaving behind some unfermented wort will also suppress uh, some of that mall characteristic. So that's number two. And number three is, uh, I think, you know, one of, one of your favorites, John is water. I think, you know, oh, yeah. water profiles will, uh, kind of enhance the malty character, maybe not aromatically, but you know, flavor wise, certain depth. Can, yeah. Can, yeah. And that depth when you're, when you're having a drink will, you know, you'll get that, you know, difference of, uh, of flavor. So those are the three things I could come up with. How about you? Well, he mentioned that he didn't think uh, contamination was a factor. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, depend, you know, he didn't identify his yeast or his water profiles, as you mentioned. I think one thing to always be aware of is uh, diastaticus um, and diastatic, more diastatic yeast strains, which because they tend to break down some dextrins, um, they can, they can ferment out some of the malt flavor. Now this is generally more the case when you're dealing with a wild yeast infection, um, and you'll open a beer and all, and all the malt aroma is gone because it's reduced it to carbonated water. But I think that's, that could be an aspect, uh, Potentially, I'm, uh, well, I, I, uh, I'm not sure about that. Okay, so 
But if so, diastaticus is uh, fermenting, you know, these these long chain sugars, these dextrins, yeah, that are normally unfermentable. But those are not the flavor compounds that produce maltiness. They're, like they're the Maillard much, reactions. Yeah, they're they're aromatically mm-hmm. neutral and you know flavor pretty much flavor neutral, right? So I'm not sure that would be the case. Well, I th- I think it's all collaborative when it comes to uh, these fermentation compounds that mm. create what we call maltiness. And mm-hmm. I know for a fact that I've had both my own beers and beers in competition where there is no malt aroma at all. And the beer body is very thin. It's very carbonated. It's had some wild yeast infection um, that has removed a lot of that. Now, maltiness can also disappear due to oxidation, um, depending on the kind. I mean, there's so many different kinds of oxidation, but, um, Mm -hmm. and, but I think those, those are possibilities as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure I'm convinced on that, but, uh, I, I certainly believe, uh, you know, it could affect certainly the overall flavor. I'm not convinced on the aroma, but I'm convinced on the, uh, absolutely on the flavor. All right, let's do this. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we're going to, we got uh, Brian listening live and we're going to ask, uh, or we're going to answer uh, a question he has for us about, uh, rye IPA. We'll be back right after this. Are you looking for a simple brewing system that's great for all grain brewing, but everything on the market seems to be full of compromises? Blickman Engineering has the answer. The Blickman Brew Easy All Grain Brewing System. The Brew Easy is a complete system with easy upgrades and a beautiful compact design, perfect for any size brewing location. At its core, the Brew Easy is built on two gorgeous Blickman Boilermaker brew kettles, a high temperature March pump, and either a top tier gas burner or the new boil coil electric heater. The Brew Easy adapter lid allows the pots to stack on top of each other, forming an efficient, strong, and compact brewing setup that comes in 5, 10, and 20-gallon batch sizes. Upgrade your BrewEasy system with full automated control by adding a Blickman Tower of Power temp controller and make moving around easy with the Blickman Kettle Cart. The BrewEasy is modular. If you already own a Boilermaker kettle, you can build your BrewEasy by purchasing just the modules you need. The new BrewEasy all-grain brewing system. See it today at BlickmanEngineering.com and brew with Blickman quality on your new BrewEasy. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. <laughs> uh, it's a joy to be back uh, here with you, John. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, see, even when we're only taking a five-second break, it's uh, it's amazing what happens during the breaks. Uh, Brian, who's li- listening live on Facebook, you can listen live to these shows that we're doing, uh, at least here during the pandemic. I think we're going to continue doing it this way for pretty much forever. Uh, so you can listen live. Uh, Brian, uh, he's listening live on Facebook, and he was saying, uh, I'm playing at a brew, a rye IPA this weekend, and I have two questions. Is a 10% of rye malt in the grist too little, too much, or just right? And will using flaked rye instead of rye malt present any benefits? Huh. Well, I would say 10% of rye malt is fine in the grist. Um, it depends on what you're trying to achieve. I have had uh, 100% rye malt. Beer, which turns out like uh, snot um, coming out of a bottle, and I've had fifty percent, and I've had ten percent. I'd say generally ten percent is as low as you'd really want to go. Anything less than that, it's pretty much had almost no effect whatsoever. Um, going, uh, you know, you know, in the ten to twenty percent. The issue with it is, one, it doesn't have a whole lot of flavor. Two, it's got, you know, some viscosity to it, and it ends up um, making it hard to uh, sparge, hard to mash. Um, So that's kind of it. Um, Flaked rye instead of rye malt, 
the the flaked rye is not malted uh, clearly because bingo yeah uh, it's you know and that's that's one of the the things I don't think it provides any benefits uh, to rye malt uh, I mean unless you're just trying to get more of the gooiness rye character. Well, I, I think, you know, with, with uh, malting, you also break down some of the uh, beta-glucanase or the beta-glucan. Uh, right. The, uh, beta-glucanase break down. Uh, <clears throat> beta-glucans. Uh, yes. But, uh, yes. So, these, uh, so you'll get a little bit less of the glucan uh, in the malted, uh, but you should get a little bit better flavor from the malted than you should from, and you'll get a little bit more fermentability um, or uh, sugar extract, I should say. Fermentability is controlled elsewhere. Um, so does that answer the question, Brian? Kind of. I, I think I would, I agree with you, Jamil, that 10% um, is kind of low end for if you're trying to make a rye IPA. Um, I would kick that up to maybe 20, 25% if it's uh, rye malt that's being used. But as you say, if it's going to be the flaked rye, uh, you you lose the benefit of the malting process in, in reducing the beta-glucan content. And so I'm just off the top of my head, I'm going to say um, 20, 25% of rye malt is going to contribute out the same amount of body that 10% five to 10% of the, the flaked rye would um, because of that, that trade-off in malting versus in. Lucan from malted from, yeah. I mean, maybe it's a 50%. Yeah. No, I'm sure there's numbers somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Ideally you could look at your the spec sheet on your, uh, on your flaked and the spec sheet on your, um, your malted and it'll tell you what the reduction in glucan is. And that's probably your, your biggest thing there. Yeah. Um, if it were me, I'd tend to lean towards uh, malted rye. Uh, just yeah, less hassle in the in the laudering, and still good flavor, good fermentability. Right. There you go. Um, Jimmy says uh, I'm planning on do to do a fall beer along the lines of a pumpkin beer, but instead of pumpkin spice, I plan to use garam masala. Uh, you know. Uh, Indian spice, yeah. you know, kind of uh, curry, Middle Eastern kind of. Yeah, uh, cumin, cinnamon, coriander, ginger, cloves, cardamom, and maybe sweet potato or butternut instead of pumpkin. Thoughts in this and a good base style? Ooh, I don't know. I think that one. I think that sounds wonderful. I am curious now. I I, I have not come up with this idea. But now I'm thinking, uh, you know, since it's posted on the internet and it's free for anybody to try, I'm, I'm curious to try this. I'd like to try this uh, here. Some, I think that's a great idea. Um, I, I think it would have a limited market, but I'm still willing to try it for our tap room. Uh, sweet potato or butternut instead of pumpkin. Thoughts on this? And a good base style. Good base style is always I, I, on anything fall autumn spiced uh beers holiday spice an amber ale not a not a, a hoppy amber ale but amber ale as it was back in like the year 2000 which is seems like such a long time ago <laughs> so uh just kind of a you know a uh, moderate alcohol abv maybe in the you know five six percent you can go a little bit more i'm sure a bit of crystal malt maybe layer a couple of kinds of crystal malt there and uh you know relatively clean ale yeast or maybe an even an english ale yeast with a little bit of fruitiness and uh really low hopping um you know mild you know a little bit sweet uh, I think sweetness really helps with these fall beer styles. I think it helps carry the spices without them seeming harsh. Right. You, you go to a higher spice level when you have some sweetness backing it. You know, one of the things about a pumpkin pie is it's sweet, right? And so when you have uh, a pumpkin pie that isn't sweet and you have all those spices, it's pretty harsh. So that's one of the reasons for going with um, the uh, Amber Ale. 
choose something different? Maybe maybe a, a porter or something? No, I, th- I, I agree with you, Jamel. Um, the, all those points, amber ale, low hopping, low bitterness, let the, let the spices come through. A um, couple things. The best um, pumpkin beer or fall ale like that field ale I ever had was in at the uh, Northern California Homebrew Fest a few years ago when you and I and Tasty were there. It was 11% um, from a club up there, contained no pumpkin, just spices and, you know, all that alcohol sweetness. And uh, it really carried the spices well, um, very well balanced, no harsh aftertaste. Uh, it was, a, I had two or three glasses of that beer. Um <laughs> The, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting to ferment pumpkin or butternut squash or sweet potato. Mm-hmm. Um, just bear in mind, these are not pure starches that we're used to working with less in the cereal grains. Um, there's a lot of protein. There's a lot of other stuff, uh, cellulose mixed in with uh, squash and, and potatoes and so on. So you're going to get a gummier mash. Mm-hmm. Um, so mash some for the fun of it, but don't try to make it 50%, a hundred percent because it's just going to turn into porridge. Right. I, I, you know, I think one of the things that helps is to bake those in the oven first. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, you develop some of those caramelized sugars that a lot of people associate with those things. I would, I would try that and, you know, um, go for it. See what happens. Like I said, people did a hundred percent rye malt beers. Um, it's yeah. possible. It, it tends to be work and may, may turn out weird, but give it, give it a shot. Yeah. We're doing this for fun, but, uh, don't kill yourself. <laughs> All right, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta turn to uh, turn to some of the email here. Um, let's see here. Let's see here. Uh, there's one in particular. Uh, some of these people listening live. Let's see here. Uh, now I'll go with this one here. All right. Uh, and as a reminder, you can send us, uh, questions at, uh, brewstrong at the brewing network.com. Uh, John writes, uh, hi, this is, uh, Johnny from Baltimore. I'm having what I call success brewing at extract kits in my kitchen. How many batches and what styles do you suggest I try before moving to all grain and how much harder and expensive is the new equipment I will need? And the biggest question is how much extra space does all grain brewing take up as opposed to my one pot and a bucket? Any insight would be helpful. He says, uh, I'm a former chef turned mailman who got a free kit on my route and I have a homebrew shop on my route in my neighborhood. Nice. I've done four five gallon kits and uh, uh, two one gallon kits. And uh, one recipe for my homebrew shop, an ESB that a few, a few issues with. Uh, for better, better, let's see. Uh, temps are high right now. He's like, uh, he's listened to 100 shows in the last few weeks. <laughs> and he's learned a lot. Well, that's good. I think, uh, first off, you know, uh, thanks for, thanks for uh, working the Postal Service. I believe, you know, with recent events, we all realize how we can't survive without having a U.S. Postal Service. So that's right. Well, thank right. you, thank you for your service and your and your uh, dedication to doing. I know a lot of these folks are, you know, concerned about being exposed to the COVID and all that stuff. Our our local postal system here, they bought like uh, two or three thousand or five thousand uh, uh, small containers of uh, sanitizer from us. So. Oh. Uh, and they were very appreciative that we were able to do that for them. So, uh, you know, tough times for people who have to go out and interact with the public uh, uh, with no choice on who that is. Uh, all right. So what's your suggestion here, John? Well, he, I, one, one main question he asked was how, you know, how many extract batches should he do? How many different styles should he do before he tackles all grain? <clears throat> and I think the answer to that is simply 
uh, we encourage extract brewing um, because it's it gets you interested in the hobby and it allows you to focus on fermentation more so than starting out with a full mash. Yeah, you can and, make great beer with extract. Yeah. Yeah. You don't necessarily have, you can make award winning beer that will beat extract brew, or all grain brewers beers uh, just by focusing on the, on the important stuff of brewing. Yep. So a good fermentation is key. And that's one nice perk about starting with extract is you can help you dial that in and then you can move on to doing the mash and lauder. And, you know, you've got your fermentation nailed down. You can focus on worrying about uh, dialing in your mash and lauder. Um, so I think, you know, you know, half a dozen extract batches under his belt. I think he's ready. Right. Well, I, I agree, you know, so how many batches and what styles, I, I think it could be any one style. It could be multiple styles. What it needs to be is you need to be very comfortable that your fermentation is really st- strong and you're doing well there yeah. and your sanitation is really well done. Uh, if you've got those two things down, sanitizing and fermenting cleanly and, and properly, then uh, the efforts of moving to all grain won't necessarily be wasted on, you know, if you're struggling with those things, you need to dial those things in first. Temperature, fermentation, temperature control, very important as well. So kind of get those things down, and I think then you're ready to move to all grain. Yeah. Uh, That's what I forgot to mention was you want to achieve clean beer, no off flavors, and, and even to a sense you want to be able to have some confidence that you can control the nuances of your fermentation you know your beers don't turn out excessively estery or you know with with slight off flavors right because switching to all grain won't fix those things right you're going to deal with another set of problems switching to all grain (laughs) that you have to have those other things dialed in Uh, all grain won't fix you know these these things uh you know, as far as how much harder and expensive it's, it's not too much harder. It's really just another step. And it's a step that pretty much takes care of itself. Um, you know, it's got a few th- things about it, but it's it's not that difficult. As far as equipment, uh, if you've read uh, Charlie Papazian's uh, The Joy of Homebrewing, he talks in there about the Zap Pap uh, method, which is two buckets, <laughs> with, uh, you know, just a a drill and drilling a whole bunch of little holes in the bottom and maybe, you know, lining with a a bit of mosquito netting or whatever. And that'll do it. There's a lot of instructions on the internet for building mash ton, uh, mash tons out of coolers uh, using uh, copper pipe or PVC pipe or things like that. And all those are relatively inexpensive. You don't need a big fancy, uh, you know, brute sculpture or something like that. You just you just need, uh, you know, the basics. So it's it, it's not too much more expensive. Uh, and how much space does it take up compared to one pot and a bucket? I think it. You know, if you if you're clever, everything will kind of all nest into the same thing. <laughs> Yeah. So it wouldn't be too much more more space. It all depends on how you do it. You can also do brew in a bag. Brew in a bag is the smallest. Yeah, might be might be the best way to go. Um, and then really your pot and your you, you really just a mesh bag is all you're adding instead. You know, and that takes a pretty much zero room. So there you go. Uh, thanks, Johnny, for uh, emailing us and uh, great question. And good luck on your route. Good luck on uh, 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 your your homebrew. All right, let's take another short break. We'll be back right after this. Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is brew strong all right we're back we're enjoying another episode of brew strong we're actually live on facebook 
having some fun here and uh, we're answering a bunch of questions from folks that are live as well as email. Uh, Leaf asks, Hey Jamel, you mentioned that you have been given bad, you have given bad advice. I, I give a lot of bad advice. Can you be more specific, Leaf? He says, uh, by using melatonin malt and lagers. I think it was when you visited Beersmith earlier. What would you use now for a rewrite of the Hellas in Brewing Classic styles? So, the... <laughs> I don't know that it was bad advice. I think that it was... Uh, Different advice. Well, all right. So the, the thing about Brewing Classic Styles is, and the thing to people miss out on is, these are the recipes that are most likely to win in competition, right? So not necessarily what I feel makes the best version of a given beer, but that... Um, Stands out and takes... Stands out and it gets first place. Yep. Or best of show, right? So that's what this is. So what I did over, you know, the... How many years of brewing before I wrote that, the, the, the recipes for that book was I had a spreadsheet, every entry, every beer, every recipe, and I did an analysis of what recipes won and why. And for a lot of these uh, loggers, it is uh, critical to have enough melanoidin character, you know, kind of popping out on a beer. When somebody has a flight of 10 or 12 beers in front of them, they kind of get numb to, you know, almost like in an IPA, uh, you know, they have to, to, to the hops as they go through the beers. And if they are not experienced enough to keep a calibration beer at the beginning and keep going back to it to see how everything is stacking up, they lose a sense of uh, what's going on. So they'll lose sense of, you know, the, the, the melanoidins or, you know, the maltiness in a beer. You know, by, by beer 10, you know, this, this uh, you know, lager that, you, that you're presenting them, they, that's, they're numb to that by then. So that was kind of the thinking in, in doing a lot of those. And it, it helps when, when, when that's the case. I think what I said on, uh, on Beersmith was I helped popularize certain specialty grains that you know may not have been used um, uh, with without that. I, I think uh, you know it, it really promoted the use of a lot of spe- certain types of specialty grains, and there are a lot of good specialty grains out there, and you don't necessarily have to use exactly those. Um, which is one of the things um, I'm disappointed about that book is that I didn't have enough room to really write. Uh, the full explanation. Like I did in the, my BYO articles, right. I explained, here's kind of the range. Here's what you're trying to achieve. Here are kind of the grains you could use to achieve it. And Brewing Classic Styles, I was limited to one recipe and a small paragraph. And they didn't even want the small paragraph, as I recall. <laughs> a bunch of recipes. I'm like, unless we explain what we're doing with this recipe, at least a little bit, you know, it's useless to people. So I want to redo it and, you know, give a full explanation as to here's what you're trying to achieve. Here are some of the tools you can use to achieve that. And here's how you can take this recipe in your own direction. I think that would be a great book. Unfortunately, it's going to be Encyclopedia Britannica. It's going to be so big, but uh, I'd still love to do it. So, uh, I guess that answers the question because this is this is what I would do. Uh, you know, yeah. as far as Hellas here uh, at our brewery, we make uh, a Hellas we call lager uh, <laughs> because we're we're convinced that uh, you know you didn't want to call it Hellas because people would wouldn't know what it was what it actually was. Um, they wouldn't know it was lager, but uh, it is. This is what Munich Hellas tastes like in Munich, if you ask me. Uh, I think is is very much so. 
and we use uh, a, a, a German continental pilsner, and we use um, a tiny bit of Munich, and we use um, some American two-row because we're getting too much malt character <laughs> from the German from the German malts. I mean, it was really just overpowering, so we had to back it down a little bit. So we use a balance of that. And so that's what I would use for uh, the Hellas and Brewing Classic Styles today. There you go. All right. Nice. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Eric asks, any tips on improving hop aromatics in the finished beer? I oftentimes find that hop aroma drops off significantly between the kegging process and the serving a week later. Purge your kegs. Purge your kegs with CO2. That if, you're, if that's where you're noticing that drop in hop aroma is from filling the keg to a week later, it's probably oxidation in the headspace. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out another little thought here. Okay. I mean, I agree with what you're saying. Uh, well, I, I have two or three things, but... One of one of the kind of the oddball thoughts that I had just tasting this beer here is uh, hot bittering drops off very quickly, right? Mm-hmm. In a week, uh, you can lose twenty five percent of your bittering. You might even be losing, you know, within a month you've lost fifty percent of your bittering. Uh, the interesting thing is, I think that people oftentimes will um, associate hop aroma with the bittering that they're tasting. Okay. And so when the bittering drops off, they have this associative thing where they're saying, oh, the hop aroma is less too. Because the deep ties between, you know, the uh, overall hop character. Right. Well, the way that, you know, you get aromatics, you know, uh, and, and even hot bittering, uh, alpha acids, you, you put those on your, yes, they're, they're bitter, but you know, they're, I think we're associating that with, with hop aroma in a lot of cases. So I think that that could possibly be one, uh, uh, one, uh, element of this and for people to keep in mind, that's why I mentioned it. The other is, yeah, certain hops will drop off very quickly. And one of the things you can do, especially <clears throat> if you're doing a, like a single hop thing, if you if you mix in, you know, three or so different hops uh, and you kind of try and stagger your uh, hop uh, uh, characters and you'll get a much longer lasting uh, than the individual pieces, you'll get a, a, a greater uh, some of the parts, uh, greater whole as you as you do that. One of the cool things I, I, I found was on Scott Janish's site. He's got a um, uh, a hop oils like kind of database where it, it's limited data, but it it ranks the hops. Uh, by prominence of given oils uh, and compounds, um, uh, it, it's it's a little odd. It's it, it's ranked from like one to thirty-seven or something. And so it's not a the actual number. It's just a ranking. But you can sort it by those rankings if you're looking for certain compounds. And when you kind of layer in certain compounds, uh, you actually get like a more sustained uh, hop aroma. So sometimes, you know, yes, citra and mosaic, but then you put underneath, you put some, you know, Cascade or Columbus or whatever, and the whole becomes much uh, more long-lived, much more prominent. So sometimes it's, it's a blending of hops, I think. That's a good point. I'll yeah. throw that out there. Uh, let's see here. How about... Uh, Distilled water. Uh, Mark uh, asks, he says, uh, yo, 
So I have brewed a New England IPA seven times now, uh, all grain brewing. And this has always been hazy and explosively fruity. But my last batch, number eight, is clear, tastes weedy, biscuity, not fruity, floral, or bitter. And then a lemongrassy as it warms up. Uh, the aftertaste is watery. This happened to my last batch, too, which was a black IPA. Uh, two factors I can see is that fermentation temperature is slightly high, 71 Fahrenheit, and I'm starting to adjust my water. Uh, he says this kind of, he says it's, it's looking, when he has it in the fermenter, it is separating like oil and water immediately after knockout in the kettle, which, I mean, that's, you know, you get the hot break that drops, cold break that drops, right? Mm. And you should get nice clear wort. I, that sounds correct to me. He says uh, in the fermenter, it's the same thing. Clear amber color for the top 40% and a very cloudy yellow green for the bottom 60%. Well, that's all your hot material setting. That's a lot of true being carried over into the, into the fermenter, which, I mean, generally you want to leave that behind. Um, it goes in to describe a source water. I think you have it there, John. It's, yep. uh, uh, but he's asking, why is it watery and not a sticky aftertaste? Uh, did the distilled water hurt the ingredients and the outcome of the fermentation, which is his suspicion? Is there a better way to lower my sulfate than during uh, diluting with distilled? Please don't say RO as he can't afford that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I looked at this, uh, this question deeply this morning. Um, he, the water profile he sent me, you know, he lives in uh, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. uh, Egerton, and they are on a uh, uh, aquifer there, a uh, fairly large one. And I looked up the report for that. And I think um, he made a mistake in either testing his water or reading the report because he lists 300 ppm sulfate and 300 ppm sodium. When the water report for that aquifer for Egg Egerton uh, lists um, a sulfate value of 12 ppm. So, and electrochemically, all the anions and cations have to have to add up to zero. Um, and uh, the the report that he sent, the numbers that he sent, don't. Um, I played around with it a little bit on my on my water adjustment app, and I um, and looking at their report and adding up those numbers, I think that values of sulfate and sodium of twelve and twenty uh, mathematically work and make more sense. So uh, that being said, his water is pretty close to distilled as it is. Uh, we're talking 5 ppm calcium, 5 ppm magnesium, only 40 ppm total alkalinity. So it is a very low mineral water, uh, typical for that region. And so I don't think he needs to do any uh, distilled water dilution with that water profile. Um, if he's making New England IPAs, um, all he needs to do is, you know, add some calcium chloride, maybe a touch more of gypsum to bump up the sulfate a little bit, get like a two to one uh, chloride to sulfate ratio, mm-hmm. maybe 100, 150 chloride to 75 to 100 sulfate or 50 to 75 sulfate. Um, lots of room there to play with. Um he also mentioned as a result of his numbers that he was adding, um, was he said, 20 milliliters of phosphoric acid to eight and a half gallons of water. That's a huge amount. <laughs> yeah. So I think he really drove his mash pH and wort pH down. Right. And that would result in clarifying the beer. You would mm-hmm. get a lot more troop separation and settling that way. Right. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's, I agree. It's a combination of maybe the water isn't the water he thinks over acidification. Um, 
it's also possible that, you know, he's, he's moved to this new location, which has kind of thrown him off. Yeah. And, you know, maybe he's also, you know, if, if you're, if you're, mash pH is super low, your extract from that mash pH is going to be super low, right? You're not going to get your extract efficiency. Uh, Mash efficiency is, you know, needs to be higher up. He doesn't say he's checking his pH. It's one of the reasons for God's sakes, check your pHs as much as you can. Um, And so, you know, perhaps he's extracting far less sugar than he thinks he is. I don't know. Maybe he's checking his gravity. Maybe he's not. Uh, but you know, maybe he's getting super low, you know, gravity or much lower gravity in his in his kettle. And assuming it's the same because he's done this seven times before, and right. so he's actually getting a thinner beer. So that might be might be a possibility as well. Yeah, I think you're right. Good question, Mark. Uh, keep on brewing, brother. Uh, let's do this. Real quick break, and we'll have more of your questions right after this. Back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys. Brew strong. All right, we're back. I did want to tell you about my good friends uh, at uh, Brew Chatter. Uh, it's a homebrew shop out in Sparks, Nevada, right? Right. It's people consider it Reno. It's, uh, it's right there. Uh, good people. It's a, it's a beautiful shop with high quality ingredients. You even got a little bar in there you can go into and, uh, often they have heretic on tap. Um, you know. there you go. Uh, they are uh, great folks. They know a lot about brewing and, uh, they, uh, will help you make some high quality beer and they have a lot of great events and uh, they've decided to sponsor their show. So that's the only questionable thing about them is that they've decided to spend money on uh, being part of Brew Strong. So, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, but good folks. Um, yeah, shows their hearts in the right place. Yeah, they are They are uh, lovely people, very funny, very, very kind, very hardworking for the homebrew community. So... Uh, you know, give their give your support to them if you get a chance. You can find them online, uh, brew brewchatterer.com. Uh, and uh, like I said, you can find them out near Reno if you're ever out in uh, lovely Reno, uh, which is an amazing place to visit. Uh, stop by the brew shop, have a beer, uh, check out uh, the amazing range of ingredients that they have there for you, and uh, you know, fresh ingredients and equipment, everything else. Uh, good people, check them out, brewchatterer.com. All right, uh, let's see here. Uh, Jason uh, Petros writes, no, Jason Williams Stockdale writes, if you were planning a farm-based brewery with growing hops, grapes for wine, and a distillery, would you also grow your own barley and malt on site for a majority of your grain bill? Would that be totally insane, a totally insane thing to do or, or uh, impossible or would it be possible? Would not involve borrowing money with a rush to profit in this model. The best numbers I can come up with now is around 8 million minimum to start. I already own the 320 acres. Well, there's, a, there's an advantage. Okay. I have some infrastructure already. Am I nuts? Everyone around me thinks this could only end in failure. Okay. <laughs> As somebody else who has gone down the insane road of uh, opening a, uh, a brewery, that in and of itself is nuts, opening a brewery. Um, the, the fact that you have 320 acres is quite an advantage. You are nuts. Um, the... the the problem is you're talking about three full-time jobs, right? Yeah. Or more three yeah. full-time jobs is a brewery. Uh, you are three full-time jobs plus an ass kicking contest. It is, I mean, trying to grow hops alone is for a decent sized brewery. If you're doing like a little five barrel or a three barrel, I could see growing your own hops. Mm-hmm. Even then, you know, just the work involved, if you want to grow your own hops for year round, 
you know, the harvest is a huge amount. And then the, the drying and preparation and the storage. The same thing, you know, doing grapes for wine. I mean, people open just wineries. <laughs> you know, if you have a team of people that is able to do a lot of this work, you know, perhaps, you know, and, and, and people know what they're doing. Uh, yeah, I could see pulling that off. Um, and a distillery. And again, a distillery, we added a distillery here. And oh my God, it is so much freaking work. You know, it seems simple, but it's not. Yeah. Um, it's a simple test. Is your father-in-law in the position of one of these tasks? <laughs> right. Father-in-law, mother-in-law, so. brothers, <laughs> sisters, you know, you're going to need a lot of people. Would growing your own barley, and I guess, you know, he's probably thinking, I'll just start out with one aspect of it. And I will add yeah. these other aspects as I go. That would be, you know, the, the smart thing to do. Would growing your own barley and malting on site for a majority of your grain bill? Oh, my God. Well, it depends on how big a brewery you're talking about doing. I think even a, a friend of mine um, grew uh, his own barley and sent out for malting. And, I mean, just the malting part alone is difficult. And yeah. the knowledge of growing the proper barley. Malting quality barley is not a drop in the bucket. And it's not, um, you know, it's not something that's easily grown. I mean, if, especially if you want the best flavor barley. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the malting process. I mean, that's something people study their lives to, to learn how to do properly. And there's a big difference between quality and, you know, everything else. You know, it, it is, there's a lot of crap out there from professionals doing it. So, you know, it, it's very difficult. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do this because one, if you pull this off, it'll be amazing. Yeah. Two, if you love doing this, well, then then you'll never have to work a day in your life. You'll enjoy doing it and you'll just have fun. So why not? Uh, and three, uh, I'd just love to see if, it, if, if you, you make a go of it. I would, I would highly stress that what you want to do is um, first, you know, start the the small brew plant right yeah. use other ingredients just order them all in start you know whatever your brewery is you must have a tap room right you must in in today's covid you must package get that running to drive revenue right get revenue flowing and that revenue flowing could you know fund some of this other stuff you might be able to you know crowdfund you know, the, the planting of the first crop of malt, right? Or, or grain that could be turned into malt. And you could send it off to have it malted, right? And then bring it back. There's plenty of places that do that. And from that, uh, you know, one of the, the perks of this is that these, you know, local brewers or home brewers could, you know, get some of that malt. So do things like that to try and make it a community thing and, you know, put put, you know, it a step at a time and then you could use that malt and you could, you know, kind of gain, gain that knowledge. And once you've got that done, then maybe you could do the hops or maybe hops are easier to start with, you know, but just take it a stage at a time and you know, 30, 40 years from now, you may uh, be halfway there. I think uh, it'd be really cool though. I'd, yeah. I'd come and uh, check it out. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, that's a good, um, good summary of it all because you've got a full-time job in raising that barley, another full-time job in getting it malted well, hops, same thing. Um, and then, and then the wine aspect. So yeah, as you say, start small, three barrel, five barrel, um, phase in each program. Um, certainly the 320 acres, that is enough acreage to uh, grow a decent amount of barley. But um, there again, I got to emphasize in my talking with um, maltsters and farmers about raising barley and the economics of raising barley, um, 
it is not as easy as growing corn and soybeans, which have been, you know, genetically modified or, you know, or just bred to be easy to grow. Uh, barley um, is tricky and it's very easy to get it overwatered, over fertilized, um, high protein, you know, less starch. Um, malting quality barley is the highest grade of barley out there. Everything else is either distiller's grade or, or animal feed. So, um, you know, get it ra- you know, the first step raising barley, you know, is one hurdle. And then you've got to make sure it's malting quality barley. There you go. All right. Uh, I think we're going to wrap up this episode of uh, Bruce Strong. If you're listening live, stay tuned because we're going to do another hour of show uh, answering more of your questions. So uh, don't, uh, don't, don't go anywhere. Uh, if you want to ask your questions, you can ask them in the uh, comment section on Facebook, uh, the brewingnetwork.com uh, Facebook page, and uh, we will we'll get to your questions as they come in. And uh, we've got uh, a bunch, bunch more questions from email as well. So uh, hang in there. And if you get a chance, uh, maybe take this, this moment or two while we're in between shows to uh, go to BlickmanEngineering.com, check them out, uh, send a nice email to feedback at BlickmanEngineering.com. Thank uh, John Blickman for paying this for this show so you don't have to. And uh, our other fine sponsor, uh, Brew Chatter out of, uh, out of uh, Reno. Good folks there. So until then, everybody, Brew Strong. Brew Strong, everyone. Brew Strong.